All right. And um, it, it gets warmer the higher I go, so I'm going to actually head down the steps a little bit here. And if you're up there, come down. There's space. Come down. Come hang out with us. It's warmer down here. Heat rises. Whatever. You know what I meant. It's going to be like that all day. Okay, so we are in the book of John right now. We've been working chapter by chapter. And if you have a Bible... Turn with me to John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in a seat in front of you. Grab it. Because I would love for you guys to be following along with us today. In the book of John chapter 4. Now John was written by a guy named John. He was one of Jesus' earliest disciples. And at the end of John, in John chapter 20, he actually explains why he wrote this gospel in the first place. He said, these things are written... So that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may have faith in him and ultimately life through him. So that's his point in writing this, is so that his audience, his intended audience, would know who Jesus is. And then would be able to place their faith in him. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times, I I, I didn't do a whole lot of geography in school, and it's definitely one of my weakest subjects. I couldn't tell you more than like three or four state capitals. I think Sacramento is the capital of a state. Um, So especially when I'm reading the Bible and I come across names of places, I tend to just skip over those sections because I don't often have context. And then I went to Israel and I started traveling around and all of a sudden, if you don't know where you're headed, you get in trouble. So then all of a sudden I had context for some of these things I was reading. What I want to do for just a moment is remind us of where we've been by looking on a map. And this may be small. Can we throw the map up there? I apologize it's small. So I brought my laser pointer. It's just an excuse to get to play with one of these things. There we go. It doesn't work. Seriously? On the, that doesn't work. Hold on. Does it work up here? There it is. Okay, it works up there. Okay, right here is the Sea of Galilee. Okay, when we talk about Galilee, that's the Sea of Galilee. This whole region here is called the Galilee region, kind of like you would talk about Newport Beach. You could all either be talking about the beach or the city itself. Sea of Galilee and the region of Galilee. Down here last week, Lee talked about the Samaritans. They live in Samaria, which is right there. The Sea of Galilee has a river called the River Jordan that flows from the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea. Now, they call it the Dead Sea because it has a river that flows into it, but nothing flowing out of it. So it collects a lot of sediment and a lot of salt. And ultimately, the water dries up and the salt is left and it becomes so caustic that nothing can live in it. Okay, so there's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is right around here. It's down near the Sea of Galilee along the Jordan River. Now, Jesus began his public ministry getting baptized in the Jordan. He traveled north up here in Cana is where he turned water into wine at the wedding. And then he traveled from there on the the feast of Passover. He traveled down to Jerusalem in order to have uh, this is where he came into the temple courts. And he got into a tiff with a lot of the people who were there because they were exchanging money at at higher rates. They were selling cattle, things like that. And he's going, you guys have completely missed the point of the temple. This is a place of worship and you've turned it into a den of thieves, a place to take advantage of people. That happened in Jerusalem. And then as Lee pointed out last week, a lot of times when people would leave Jerusalem, they would travel north and they would cross over the Jordan River and travel on this side of the Jordan River. 
because they didn't want to pass through Samaria. The Samaritans were kind of considered half-breeds, outcasts, and they just didn't want to interact with them at all. And so they would literally go way out of their way, cross the Jordan River to get back up to Galilee. Jesus, though, chose to travel straight through Samaria, and it's there that he interacted with a woman at a well. And he not only spoke with her, but he began to share. She was the first person he ever, you know, outright said, I am the Messiah. The person you're speaking to is the Messiah you've been waiting for. And then from there, he travels north up into the Galilee region. Once again, he's going into that region of Galilee. He's not necessarily going to the Sea of Galilee. He is simply going into that region. You guys with me? It was just really quick. I just wanted to give you some context for the distances and the things that we're talking about. All right. Now, John chapter 4. We're just going to finish up the end of that, moving into John chapter 5. So, I want to read the last couple of verses of uh, his interaction with the Samaritans because it's really interesting how they respond to him. We read in verse 39 of chapter 4 that many Samaritans of the town believed in Christ, in Jesus, because of this woman's testimony. And she went and said, hey, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. Remember, these are Samaritans. These are half-breeds in the Jewish mindset. Jews would not normally interact with them. And yet they go, hey, would you stay with us and teach us and help us understand? And Jesus was willing to do so. And because of his words, many more of these Samaritans became believers. Then they say to the woman, we no longer believe just because you said, uh, because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Why are they believing? It's not because of anything they've seen per se. It's not because he did some radical miracle. It's simply because he shared the good news with them. He shared himself with them. And that's important because the very next thing he does is he travels north up into the Galilee region, back to Cana, which is the place where he had done his first public miracle, changing water into wine. So we read in verse 43, after two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is important because this is going to be kind of the feel of what goes on in this interaction. Mainly, that a prophet who speaks the words of God is not respected by the people who have known him growing up. That a prophet cannot be treated in the way that God intends. There's a lot more resistance. However, the very next line in verse 45, we read that when Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Okay, so it doesn't seem like they're rejecting him. They had all seen what he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. That's when he went into the temple courts and he scattered the coins and he drove out all the cattle. And and they'd also been there during that Passover festival. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. Can we throw that map up for just one more second? I haven't finished playing with my laser pointer. Okay, right here is Cana. It's in the middle of Galilee. About 16 miles to the right or to the east is Capernaum, up at the top. So this royal official probably worked for a guy named Herod Agrippa, who was Rome's emissary, Rome's representative in the region, he traveled 16 miles to meet Jesus because his son is dying and what father wouldn't do whatever he can to try to save his son. So there was a royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus's response. 
because it doesn't, he doesn't respond in a way that you would think when, when there's this hurting father. He said, gosh, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. What an interesting response to a man who's begging for his son's life. But what Jesus is getting at here, and I understand it's not all that clear just from the, the English translation. What Jesus is getting at here is, man, when I'm in Samaria... All I needed to do was share the good news and people were going, yes, we give our lives to you. But here in Galilee, you guys have seen me change water into wine. You've seen me, you know, um, do miraculous things, I, healing other people. Now you're wanting even more. You're, they're beginning to look at him more as like a faith healer than they would as a prophet, somebody who represents God. Jesus's main focus was not healing people at least in the physical sense. Jesus' main focus was healing people eternally, spiritually. And they're missing the point. And this guy in particular is looking at Jesus as a faith healer. Come, I need your help. I need you to heal my son. That's all I want you for. Then I'm going to go back to my regularly scheduled life. The royal official, who is used to giving orders, by the way, now resorts to giving an order. Sir, come down before my child dies. I need your help. This is what I'm here for. This is why I sought you out. This is why I went 16 miles to come and find you. But Jesus, who has compassion, is also not willing to be ordered around, cowed into doing what this man wants in the way he wants. Because I think this guy kind of thought, well, as a faith healer, he has to come and he has to see my son. He has to put his hand on him. So come with me. And Jesus doesn't do it in the way that he thinks he should. Jesus simply said, go, your son will live. And this guy... This royal official takes him at his word and he leaves and he travels the 16 miles, which isn't something that, you know, it's not on paved, easy roads. This was hard riding. This was a day's travel. The man took Jesus at his word and he departed. And while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. So a full day earlier. When the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live, he and his whole household believed. So, amen, a man who was Roman, a man who really wasn't looking for the Messiah, found the Messiah because of a miraculous healing of his son that took place many, many miles separate from where Jesus said he would be healed. But this was the second sign that Jesus performed while coming into Judea from Galilee. So that's backstory. Now we are heading into John chapter 5. Sometime later, how much later? We don't know. Because what John is doing again is he's simply telling a story. There are so many things that go on in a day. I mean, how, how would, if I were to come up here and were to do anything and I said, hey, would you write about what you've seen me do up here? I imagine that you guys would write down a couple of lines of what you experienced, but you wouldn't write down every word that was shared. You wouldn't write down every mannerism that I did, every action that I did, because there simply wouldn't be enough paper for you to be able to do it. So you're going to pick and choose based upon who you're writing to. And that's exactly what John, the author of this gospel, does. He is choosing moments from Jesus' life that he wants to highlight certain things. And so at some different point, there's another festival, another, another feast in Jerusalem. There are three feasts that people all over Judea would travel into Jerusalem for. The Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles, the time where they celebrated the, the, the Jews traveling through the wilderness and living in tents and whatnot. 
So this is during one of those festivals. Which one? We're not sure. But Jesus once again travels south into Jerusalem. So we read that sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, it's just an interesting point. Why would they say he went up to Jerusalem if he was coming south to do it? Jerusalem is on one of the highest mountainous regions in all of of Israel, which means that regardless of where you approach it from anywhere in Israel, you always have to go up to it. You're always climbing up to Jerusalem. In fact, in the book of Psalms, there are 15 psalms that are called the Songs of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. And these are songs that pilgrims would sing as they were climbing the mountain up into Jerusalem. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of these Jewish festivals. And there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here... There were a great number of disabled people that used to lie there. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. There's a bunch of people sitting here. One of the reasons is there was a, a superstitious belief attached to this particular pool. They believed that when the water was stirred, maybe it was because of the water that was coming out of the well would stir it, or maybe it was because there was breeze on the water. But anytime they saw the water stirred, they believed it was an angel that was stirring that water. And the belief was that it, whoever got into the water first would be healed of whatever, whatever malady that they had. And so people flocked to this place, particularly the ones who were sick. They would have people carry them to the edge of the pool so they could be ready. So there's a bunch of people here who are lying there waiting for the waters to be stirred, hoping, desiring to be healed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know exactly what... His malady was, maybe he was paralyzed, maybe he was simply crippled, maybe there was something else going on. But all we know is that for 38 years, this man had been shackled by this. And when, he saw, or when Jesus saw this man lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Which I find to be such an interesting question. It's like, you're going to ask this guy if he wants to get better? But you think about it, Jesus had this tendency to cut right to the heart of things. He doesn't go, hey, how are you feeling today? Hey, can I get you something? No, he cuts right to the heart of this guy, what what this guy needs. Do you want to get well? And this man's response is actually a litany of the reasons why he's not better. All the things that are standing in his way, his sob story, if you will. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. So that's why I'm not better. But Jesus doesn't even address his superstition. So whether the Bible is actually pretty silent on whether or not that was even true, he simply goes right to the heart of it and he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once this man who had been shackled by this malady for 38 years was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. And we we want to celebrate and go, yet another miracle, yet another example of how Jesus is more powerful than this man's malady or more powerful than the things that shackle us. And yet it's at this very moment that this story takes a radical turn and the rest of the chapter kind of goes into a different conversation because the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so all of the Jewish leaders said to this man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you from carrying your mat. Awesome. I'm so glad they got the point. So here's here's what the, what the, the Jewish leaders were fixated on. The fourth commandment 
is pertaining to the Sabbath. On the Sabbath you shall do no work. Neither your manservant, your maidservant, any of your cattle, everybody is to rest. It is a Sabbath to the Lord because on the seventh day of creation, the Lord rested. So you too should rest from all work. That's what the commandment says, but it leaves us with the question of, well, what constitutes work? And so that was left up to the Jewish rabbis to spend time trying to haggle over, well, what does that mean? And they came up with a whole lot of different categories of what would constitute work. One category they came up with was something called carrying a burden. You may not carry a burden on the Sabbath, which leads to another question of, well, what constitutes a burden? And there were a lot of different definitions they gave a burden. For instance, they said, you may carry just enough ink to write two Hebrew letters. Just two. Any more than that would be constituting a burden. Or you can carry just enough milk for one swallow. Any more than that would be considered a burden. (laughs) And here comes this guy carrying his mat. Oh no, a burden! Put it down! Well, I just got healed. Put it down! It's the Sabbath! Before we take pot shots, though, at the Pharisees, in all honesty, I want us to understand why they were so fixated on this. The Pharisees truly believed that if they could keep the Sabbath perfectly, just one time, if all of Israel observed the Sabbath perfectly just one day, they believed that God would send the Messiah back. This was derived directly from their teaching that the rabbis had come up with. Here's an example. Can we throw up the... That, okay, this is from the Shemot Rabbah, which is basically the Jewish teaching, the rabbinical teaching on the book of Exodus. They say this, Though I have set a limit to the end, the day that the Messiah would come, that it will happen in its time, regardless of whether my people repent or not, the Messiah will come if they just keep one Shabbat, one Sabbath, because the Shabbat is equivalent to all the other commandments. Their belief was, we keep the Sabbath one time, perfectly the messiah comes and he will redeem his people we will be reestablished as the most powerful nation on the earth because that was their idea of what redemption looked like and so what they began to do is they began to build walls around the sabbath they began to make up all of these rules they wanted to build fences so that nobody would get close enough to actually breaking the sabbath let's just protect it great heart But the problem was they'd focused on the letter of the law and they've completely missed the heart of the Sabbath. They believed that mankind was created in order to keep the Sabbath as opposed to the Sabbath being created to be a blessing to mankind, to be able to preserve their relationship with one another and with their God. Does that make sense? So the Pharisees... Had, had their desire was in the right place, but they'd missed the heart of God in the process of trying to hold on to the law. And so here comes this guy carrying his mat. It's a burden. And they start freaking out and they say, don't you know it's a Sabbath? You're breaking the Sabbath. Now we have to wait another week before we can do this perfectly. Verse, well, let's start with verse 9 again. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who was healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, well, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk, and I, he healed me, all right? And so then they start going, well, who, asked, who, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Who told you to break the Sabbath? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. But later... 
Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. This wasn't just a momentary thing where you had a little bit of energy and it wore off. You are healed. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Apparently Jesus felt like from an eternal perspective, there were worse things than being physically sick, physically broken. Far worse things in an eternal perspective. So stop sinning or something worse may happen. And the man instantly went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. Now the Jewish leaders' sights are trained on Jesus. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. That's an interesting word. We'll come back to that in just a second. Persecute. Began to persecute him. Now in his defense, Jesus said this to them. My father is at his work to this very day, and I too am working. In other words, listen, God never stops working. Yes, when he created, six days he created on the seventh, he rested. Well, that word rested has actually ceased. He stopped from his creating work because he'd finished what he set out to do. He created creation. And he modeled for it. But it's not because God was tired. It's not that God needed the physical rest. He's God. He never stops working. He never stops ministering. He never stops moving towards his people. And I, his son, follow in his footsteps. So I, too, never cease in ministering to people and caring for them. <laughs> well, this made things even worse in the Jew, for the Jews. Because now Jesus was not only breaking the Sabbath and teaching other people to do it, but he was now claiming that God was his father. He was basically saying, I am the son of God. I'm, he was claiming to be equal with God, and that was worthy of death. Verse 18, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so we go back to that word in verse 16, persecute. Because John chooses a very interesting word there to talk about what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. Because he could have used a lot of different words to talk about them trying to stop what he was doing or trying to, to thwart his attempts. But he used the word persecute, and that word is a legal term. It could also be translated prosecute. They began to prosecute him. They began to basically put him on trial. And in a lot of ways, Jesus at this point is on trial, at least in the court of public opinion. He's not standing before Pilate. He's not standing before Herod. But he is on trial in the court of public opinion before the religious peers of his day. And the two arguments they have against him, the two things that they want to declare him guilty of are breaking the Sabbath, teaching other people to do it, and claiming that God is his father, claiming equality with God. If he is found guilty on even one of those two things, the only penalty that they can give him is death. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, and whenever we see this, we know that, it, that, it, that is actually amen, amen. Truly, truly. And he uses it to highlight something that he's trying to really get them to understand. Amen, amen. Truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So all that I'm doing, I'm doing because the father shows me and tells me to do that. For just as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Just like God gives life, I can give life. 
Moreover, the father judges no one. He has entrusted all judgment to the son. Wait a minute. You're saying that not only are you a life giver, but God has entrusted judgment to you? He has entrusted the judgment to the son so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly, amen, amen, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Amen, amen, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. So now Jesus is claiming two things. What, what does God have a monopoly on? The ability to give life and the right to judge because he's the one who came up with the standard. And Jesus is saying, I have the ability to give life and I have the ability to judge. Now, if Jesus were trying to walk back his statement that he's the son of God, trying to kind of make a case for himself, no, that's not what I meant. He's going about it in the wrong way, isn't he? He's doing just the opposite. He's highlighting it, underscoring it. I am who I have claimed to be. I am the son of God. Which is interesting because there are a lot of people in our society who would like to point to Jesus and say, you know what, I don't believe he's the son of God, but I do think that he is a good moral teacher. God bless you. I do think he's a good moral teacher. The problem is that Jesus doesn't give us that option. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Jesus really only gives us three options. Either we can condemn him as a liar reject him as a lunatic, or we can embrace him as the Lord of our lives. He does not allow us to look at him as a good moral teacher because if he is claiming to be the son of God and he's not in fact the son of the God, he's lying or he's deluded. But if he is, then he is the only, the only way to the father. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the father except through him, just as he said. Jesus himself makes that claim. Verse 28, don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise and live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. But I myself can do nothing. Listen, I don't do anything by my own opinions, my own ideas. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Very important verse we're going to come back to in a little bit. Now, if you were in a court of law and you were trying to make a case for you in Jewish courts, the witness, the, the, the person who is on trial could not ever give their own testimony without at least another witness present. Because if they gave it by themselves, it was inadmissible. You needed to have at least one other witness to corroborate your story. Does that make sense? Jesus accepts that as, as a necessary thing. So he says in verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony isn't true, okay? I can't give my own testimony without at least one corroborating witness. There is, however, one who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. And now Jesus gives us five witnesses, five different parties that support what he is saying about himself. Verse 33, you have sent to John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time 
to enjoy his light. So John is the first witness that I would point to to corroborate my suggestion that I am the son of God. Number two, verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, they testify to the Father that the Father has sent me. Listen, I just helped a guy who, who for 38 years had been shackled by this disease. I helped him stand up whole and healed. That is a testimony that God is with me and I am who I say I am. Witness number two, God, Jesus' works, his actions, the miracles that he was doing. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. So the third witness is God himself. You have never heard his voice, nor have you seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you don't believe the one he sent. God himself said when Jesus was baptized, within his own voice said, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. He supported and affirmed who Jesus was. Whether or not these other people heard him, Jesus heard him, and that's all the testimony he needed. Verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the fourth witness are the scriptures of God. They would consider them to be the Old Testament because the Jews in this time didn't have the New Testament, nor would they have considered the apostolic writings to be scriptural. So the Old Testament points to me. God bless you. Verse 41. I'm trying to just get through this and we'll come back and pick up some pieces once we get through the whole, the whole chapter. Verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you don't have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? But you think that I'm going to accuse you before the Father? No, your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Witness number five is Moses. Moses' writings. In in Deuteronomy, Moses said, the Father is going to send another prophet just like me who will lead you and guide you. Moses wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So five witnesses. John the Baptist... The works that Jesus was doing, his miracles, God himself, God's word, the scripture, and then finally Moses. These are five witnesses that supported Jesus' claim to be the son of God. But one last thing I want to let you know about in terms of, of Jewish legal proceedings. Unlike today, where the only goal of a case is to decide whether or not the defendant is guilty or innocent, in that day and age, the the courts always sought to find out the truth, even if that meant that somebody else was at fault and therefore they would be punished. Meaning, I could go up and I could say, Frank, he's the one who did it. And I would accuse Frank of some wrongdoing and we would go into a court proceeding and Frank's like, I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. And in the end, if it was found out that I was lying or maybe perhaps even I had done it, I would be shackled with the penalty that I was hoping to instill upon him. Does that make sense? And so halfway through this, rather than Jesus just trying to defend himself, he actually goes on the offensive. And that shift takes place in verse 37. So let's go back and let's read a couple of these verses here. He goes from defending himself to now focusing right in on his accusers and saying, you guys are missing the point. Verse 37. 
The father who sent me himself testified concerning me. But you've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you don't believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You look to the scripture thinking that by it you have life. But the whole point of scripture is not to give life, but merely to point like a compass towards the only one who can give life. And I stand before you and yet you refuse to come to me. John the Baptist pointed at me. The works that I'm doing point to me. The Father in heaven points to me. The scripture points to me. Moses points to me. And yet you still refuse to accept me as I am. So the first thing I'm accusing you of is unbelief. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. I don't accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you, have, you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but you don't seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? You're more concerned with what other people think about than you are what God thinks about you. You have focused on doing the letter of the law, on being outwardly religious, but your hearts are full of greed and pride and lust and anger. You're missing God's heart here. You're you're an outward shell. You've cleaned the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. You're more concerned with what other people think about you than what God thinks about you, which is the antithesis of what Jesus said about himself in verse 30. Go back there for just a second. Jesus said in verse 30 of this chapter, I myself can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus lived for an audience of one. The Father was the only person's opinion that he cared about. And you watch throughout his ministry, we're going to see as we get into chapter 6, just how much this is true. You watch as Jesus kind of walks blindly through the the rise and fall of public opinion. It's like the tide of public opinion comes in and goes out and it never phases him. In chapter 6, he's got masses of people who are coming to him. And he's like, whatever, you guys are all going to leave me. Eat my blood, or eat my body, drink my blood. And they're like, we're out. He's like, whatever. I don't care. I'm more concerned about whether you get it or not. I'm more concerned about whether or not you place your faith in God. I aim to do his will. How you respond is your own choice. So there are people who will clamor for him to be king in one moment and the very next minute shout crucify him. We want nothing to do with him. Let's just get rid of him. And Jesus was not affected by that because he did not come to garner accolades from people. He lived his life for for an audience of one. And I would love to look at myself and say I live the same way, but I've got to tell you, I don't. I go through life so concerned about what other people think about me. Sometimes more concerned how you perceive me than how he perceives me. It's like I walk through life with a sign around my neck that says validate me and I go, what do you want me to do, Gary, in order for you to think I'm a good father, a good husband, a good pastor? Just tell me and I'll do it. And I, I, it's like I, I become a chameleon sometimes. And I change my color based upon who's around me. 
and what I think they expect from me or want from me. I doubt I'm the only one in here who feels this way sometimes. The scary part is, it can be really easy to play at church. Really easy to go through the religious motions. Really easy to do good things and pretend give the illusion of having an intimate relationship with God and reality being very far from him because we focused on the letter of the law and forgotten about the heart of the law. We focused on, we focused on studying this and memorizing this and knowing this, but forgetting that this is merely a compass that points to the only source of life that we have. This is not the source of life. He is the source of life. This merely points us to him. We are not saved through the holy word of God. We are saved... Actually, I guess we are through the Logos, through the Word of God who took on flesh and took the penalty upon Himself for us. This points us in that direction. This reminds us of God's heart. But this is not how we have life. He is how we have life. And so this morning, I guess my prayer for us is that we would not fall into the trap of the Pharisees, that we would not play at church that we wouldn't put on masks that suggest that we have it all together, that we are religious, that we're doing the right things, we're inside, we're doing it by our own strength. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way we will have eternal life is through Him, not through our own efforts, not through climbing the, law, or climbing the ladder of the law. It's through coming on our knees to the, the foot of the cross and saying, God, you know me. You know that I don't do things perfectly. You know the evilness inside of me. You know the brokenness that I carry with me. And I'm exhausted trying to be good enough. I'm exhausted trying to put on a mask that says I've got it all together when in fact I know that it's just an act. The most beautiful thing about our God is He knows us intimately and even though He knows the brokenness, the stuff that we want to hide, He moved toward us and loved us enough that he would take upon himself the penalty that we had earned. Because he wants relationship with us. Warts and all. Guys, we... May we stop. May we stop striving and running on these hamster wheels of the law and trying to be good enough. May we stop trying to earn God's love and simply rest in God's love. And may that then play out in every relationship that we have. That's been something that God has been working on in me for decades. Still in process. May we begin to focus on our relationship with God, not simply focus on doing right religious things. Those things, they're important, but only as a response, not as a prerequisite to His love. You are loved. You are a daughter. You are a son of God. May you rest in that. Let's pray. Father, I I recognize that um, there's so much more, so much more about you than we realize. So much more even here this morning that we have not been able to delve into, but May you take from this and plant the seeds of truth deeply in the soils of our heart. Holy Spirit, would you nurture and water 
the truth so that it would, it would grow and, and produce fruit in our lives. God, help us to rest in the truth of who you are. Help us to come to you. Not just to know more about you, but to know you intimately. Not just to care about the gifts you can give us, but to care about knowing the gift giver and having life in you. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for not caring about other people's opinions or not trying to build your own kingdom, but simply doing God's will and advancing his kingdom. So we give you our, we, we, we just bring ourselves to you as we are. The, the nice things that we like to show other people and the things that we're ashamed of. Say, God, here I am. Use me. Cleanse me. Guide me. Give me life. I'm yours. Your will be done. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.